Welcome to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I'm Pat Contra, your host, and this week my guest is Gerard Khalil. He's a big time YouTuber with nearly 800,000 subscribers on his main channel, and his flagship show is The Completionist, which is also his moniker. Welcome, Gerard. Hey, how's it going, Pat? Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for finally uh, coming on board here. We tried to set this up a while ago. You've been sick uh, recently. Hope you're better. Are you running yourself ragged already, do- redoing all those episodes? <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been a little little under the weather, but I, that just naturally comes with the wear and tear of being a human. You can't. You have to take some time for yourself to just kind of relax, and that's something that I definitely do not do. <laughs> Which has become a running theme from the YouTubers I've spoken to. And I'm starting to see more and more comments from people noticing that um, about, you know, like people, YouTubers saying, I work seven days a week. I work six days a week. I haven't had a vacation in four or five years. And do you also see that with your colleagues or other uh, YouTubers where it seems like there's a constant grind going on that's almost never ending? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, because we have an office building filled with nine to 11 YouTubers and streamers all together under one roof. And all of us as a group, as a whole, feel that massive fatigue. But the nice thing is that we're there for each other and we can, you know, we, we take the times for our personal lives for each other. So, for instance, we'll go to movies together, we'll go on vacations together, we'll do convention tours together just as our means of, hey, let's get out of the office as a group and go do something fun. So it's almost like going out for like a happy hour in a traditional office building. It's like, oh, let's all go out for drinks. We had a rough week. Let's all just at least hang out for a couple hours and sort of relax about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's our, own little, our own little getaway for as, as little time as it may be. <laughs> I get that. So the, the insane work ethic that I see in you and other YouTubers and probably sometimes myself, uh, do you think that comes from just the, the level of competition on YouTube where you can easily get lost if you don't put out constant content, people might forget about you in sort of the ADD internet age, or is it really, does this le- this sort of work attract the sort of, you know, hard worker that would traditionally in the past go towards other fields, and now this is what YouTube has attracted? Well, I think it depends on, on what you're looking for. I think... For me, it's a little bit of column A, column B with a little bit of column C. And column C to me, and this is what uh, uh, Aaron, Egoraptor, and I talk about a lot, is fuck you energy, which is like you kind of are – we're in this industry where people are constantly doubting you, criticizing you, making you feel bad, putting you down. And uh, for me, I don't really see it as – you know, a personal attack so much as I see it as a, oh, you don't think I can do this crazy asinine thing? Well, then watch me do it. And so it's a combination of that mixed in with uh, what YouTube has become as a never-ending ecosystem of content. The fact that the algorithms are constantly changing and punishing us as we, you know, get more successful or, or learn to go with the punches, if you will. Uh, on top of my personal, uh, my own personal work ethic, I think it's a combination of those things three things well what did you do for work before youtube was full-time did you have a chance to get into the work world or you were too, so too young you're really getting a chance to step in fully so no no i so when i was when i was 14 15 i got my first job i was working at at a uh, mom and pop cat the cafe making espressos and lattes and sandwiches and stuff it made a lot of learned learned how to make a lot of uh tomato soup <laughs> tomato soup yeah it wasn't out of a can there it was from scratch 
<laughs> it was from scratch. Wow. Uh, a lot, a lot of burns in my hands when I was younger. Could, did you make the whipped cream little leaves in the top of the? Oh, absolutely. I, ha- I had to like they. We had our own little like whipping machine on the side where, for all the cream <laughs> and stuff, and just had to perfectly puree the top of of the tomato soup. Um, so yeah, I worked there for a couple of years, and then from there, when I was 17, 18 years old, I got a job working for MySpace. That old little website that everyone used to work, that everyone used to love and use more so than Facebook. Uh, I worked there for three years in the data centers, and my responsibilities would be to rack and stack servers, um, configure them, cable them together. And uh, my brother was one of the large um, tech arms of MySpace. He he would be basically Tom Anderson's uh, right hand man. So if the website ever went down or Anything like that, chances are it was my brother who tweaked a setting who was freaking out. And so he and I worked closely together to, to, at the different data centers to make sure that servers would come online and communicate together and would handle a lot of the traffic. Because at one point, MySpace, believe it or not, was the biggest website on the earth. It was, it was receiving more traffic than, than almost any website uh, at, at one point. It was crazy. You hear that, whippersnappers out there? Back in the o, back in the o five and the o four the o, the o five the o six the o seven that's so weird to say that because it's like over ten years ago I don't believe I know. it so it's, so your brother worked for the Tom the Tom that was friends with everyone on MySpace when you first got your profile correct and that, correct and, and then he got you in on that because you were if this was eleven twelve years ago you were really young to be working in yeah, the IT department I was, I was seventeen eighteen years old I had a passion for building computers and just overall consumer electronics and so my brother taught me at an early age because my dad you know runs his own you know local business or not local business but his own business and my brother is like became an it guy for my dad and so he learned a lot about what he learned from that and he used that as his skill when he went to go work for myspace and he quickly rose the uh the corporate ladder at myspace but from a tech perspective, it never was a matter of making executive calls. He always was down in the data centers wearing cold jackets till 5 a.m., working his butt off. And uh, I, I loved going with him to work. And eventually, uh, after I kind of I, – I'm a, I'm a really quick learner, so I was able to pick up what he was doing physically. And then he would kind of teach me how to code and, and open terminal commands and start configuring the servers. And uh, I did that for about three or four years while I was going to college. So we're talking. You're starting off as a 17, 18 year old working at MySpace. That young? Yeah, I was. I was working through a temp agency at the time, a Deco. You know, they like employ. Just you know, you can go and companies can say, "Oh, we want temporary workers to do manual labor or or computer processing or or note taking or whatever." And so I got in through there, and then once I worked through them, I I officially got hired through Fox and through MySpace to continue doing my job as they as they fired the other temporary staff and then I was there for about a year until I decided to really focus on school and just get my education out of the way. But you you were there for 3 years though. You yes, said. I was. So so let me so little Gerard, high school Gerard, you're sitting there <laughs> in high school in in, in Palos Verdes and mm-hmm. you're thinking, okay, I can go out and have fun. I could enjoy my high school years and my early college years. Instead, I want to get into the IT corporate world <laughs> and work for a gigantic website. I, um, so even at – what I'm gleaming is even at that young age, you had a, a 
an urge to do work, an urge to go out there and and tr- try to apply yourself early on. Yeah, I, I I would say it's true. I think uh, I went to school for theater and film. I double majored, and so while I was getting my degrees and really through high school, I was doing a lot of musical theater and acting for television and film and and theater. And I was failing, mind you, because this is Los <laughs> Angeles, so everyone everyone doesn't get a, doesn't well, get their big break, right? <laughs> well, if you kept on it, you would have been the Josh Gad right now at this point, yeah, right? right? That would have been <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, I. I you know, the tech side was always my hobby, and my real passion was acting and, and film and creating in that aspect. And so, uh, but the money was in the tech industry, and especially as someone who didn't know a lot about tech but was willing to learn and put in the hours, really, I was learning from an early start that as long as you just keep putting yourself into what you're doing and and practicing and, and learning and growing, then you can really do anything. And that was kind of my big takeaway from working at MySpace was late night hours, but really appreciating all the stress that was there because I learned so much about how to do all these cool different things. So that's where you developed an earlier work ethic. But it sounds like but from before that, it probably was instilled in you from your father running his own business, being an entrepreneur and doing that. Yeah, so I'm I'm the youngest of five. I have four siblings, one brother and three sisters, all of which own either own their own businesses or work at a corporate company high on the ladder where they you know, work their way up the to that point where then they jumped that ship and made their own business or sold it or whatever they did with it. Um and so being the youngest of five is super hard because especially in this environment, because my dad essentially was a single parent because my mom got Alzheimer's when I was ten. So it was one of those things where uh, he was taking care of mom and his business was thriving and growing and we were all helping mom as well on top of all of us having these high demanding jobs or responsibilities. And so at a young age, we all learned to just kind of roll with the punches and and really commit to, to prioritizing and scheduling our lives to help each other out. So, um, you know, on top of being a full-time student and a theater nerd and a comedy sports nerd, loving video games and doing a job in MySpace, I was taking care of my mom full-time with my brother, who essentially was running MySpace, with my sister, who was getting her entrepreneur degree at U- uh, USC, and my other sisters who started their own companies, and my dad. So we we as a family have really learned to support each other and be there for one another as we're doing our own things. And that's always been our strongest suit as a family. My mom used to say to us, um, you know... One of us by ourselves, we're like a stick, right? We can break. But if we all bind together as a bundle, you can't break us. And that's always been kind of our family motto is that we just stick together through all the bullshit and just really push through. Uh, that's that's a beautiful saying. And it, that speaks to, obviously, the strength of family. Uh, you, I won't get into my familial issues, but it sounds like you had a nice core and foundation. And I, I can't imagine being that young with uh, a mother going through early onset dementia. That just sounds... Uh, terrifying at the same time but it sounds like you guys abandoned together so good on you guys for that i can't imagine you got I, I mean when i think about that part of the story um with you it almost seems like not necessarily that all the stuff you've done was an outlet to keep yourself busy maybe in some aspect with all this going on but it probably helped at least i'm guessing it relieved some of the strain and pressure and just you know emotional feelings you know oh oh yeah when you Everyone deals with tragedy and, and heartache and, and breakups and really just personal stuff in their own way, right? But I think what 
what it all taught me with my mom and her illness was that like I can still be a normal person and still experience crazy things that happen. And I think everyone handles their own things differently. But uh, that was the that was the big urge for my dad really when I when I finally got into college because when I got to college. My dad told me, you know, now you're a man. You can go actually live your life for the first time. You don't have to come home. You can stay in your apartment. You have your own car. You have your own money. Like, you are an adult now. Don't feel tied to coming back to the family. Really find who you are and what you want to do with your life. And and that was actually scary for me because, you know, I, I was, you know, for eight or nine years, I was, I was with my family in high school, doing all these extracurricular activities, taking all these AP courses and working in all these jobs. And then I got to high school or I got to college and all that was gone. And my only job was to be a student. And, uh, that freaked me the fuck out. <laughs> uh, that's why I went back to work in my space because I was like, I don't know what to do. There's not enough for me to do. <laughs> that's really interesting. So you were saying you'd be bored at school. Yeah. Just sort of hang go to class. You come home and study. What do you do with the other eight hours of the day you got to fill, right? When cl- yeah. once class is open after three or f- over at three or four. Wow, that's very interesting. And so so from a, from an earlier age, um, you you had this sort of I, I guess desire to at least work and to be constructive in, at, at that age. While some of us had to develop that and uh, and, and basically force ourselves to do that and sort of get to that point. I mean, I thought it was bad just having my my crappy job in the mall when I was in college. You know, in the summer, I thought that was a hassle. You know, just <laughs> just working at you know just working at a what was it? I worked at Suncoast Motion Picture Company where they sold still VHSs but also some DVDs that were new at the time. So did this? So you this this quote unquote fuck you energy that uh, I never heard it expressed that way before, but it makes <laughs> sense. And I, and, I, and I haven't spoken to Aaron in a long time. Now when somebody. I talked. I really have to ask about that specifically. Um, this is separate from your your own work ethic, but this sort of I guess builds upon it. Like you already have a nice foundation of okay, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to going to get myself out there. I'm going to handle the stress. But now you have an extra desire built in based upon naysayers and competition. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I you know I, I've never really been a competitive person in regards to being the best. Um, I've actually been the exact opposite. I've always, I've always looked at competition and, and, you know, everyone's like, how do I be number one, number two, number three? And I've never really tried to live that way. I've always just tried to be like, how do I be different? How do I stand out? How do I get honorable mention? How do I make people walk away remembering who I am and what I've done? And, um, that's where a lot of that fuck you energy comes from because, uh, I, I've aside, my family has always been so supportive, right. And telling me what to do and, and supporting me and in, in living my dreams. And then I really, I meet other friends or other like-minded individuals who have been like, you can't do that. That's crazy. Why would you do that to yourself? That sounds awful. Don't do that. And that mere fact of someone saying, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Or that's stupid. That's always upset me because that just means that I should like, that's like give up before you started, you know? And I, I, I can't. I have to try. I have to give it my best before I walk away from something. So even if someone came to you and said, this is nuts, don't do this, out of not even out of hatred, out of love, they thought they were helping you by telling you not to do something, you still took that as sort of a, uh, a, a challenge, a sort of like kicking the butt to actually go out and do it harder than may, maybe you would have before. Yeah, abs- absolutely. When I started doing the completionist specifically, uh, one of my buddies, Zan, who as a good friend of mine, he just was like, man, I love you. You work, you put your heart and soul into everything and I want you to do well. 
but you are crazy for doing what you do and thinking it's going to work. And I looked at him and I was like, I appreciate your concern and I know that it's pretty insane, but I think I can do it and I'm going to make it work. And fast forward to six years now, six six years next Friday, and uh, I've been I've been doing this for six damn years, and that's crazy to think about. <laughs> that's kind of funny because uh, someone we mutually know that we might have discussed before in uh, in Norway said something similarly to me. I, I quit my my soul crushing day job back in 2012, so it's been a little over five years. But I didn't have any sort of success on YouTube at all for probably a year and a half, two years after that. I was almost starting from zero income uh, at that point. He said something similar. He said, are you sure you want to do that? Do you think that's a smart idea to do that? Basically doubting me. And not that that um, gave me a, an extra push. But I think it, it just showed that there are some people out there that, um, for rightly or wrongly, don't lack the same confidence in something that you want to do or your dreams or something you want to push yourself to. And I think that's why when you take advice from people, you should listen to them, but take everything with a grain of salt. And this isn't me saying to you, obviously, but to everyone else listening to this, that not saying that there isn't something that you can say to someone that would make sense. Like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. Okay, well, well, how are you going to do that? Are, are you are you in the military? Are you going? Have, are are you in flight school? What's your path? Like asking questions <laughs> like that. If I want to be an astronaut, that makes sense. But for something that's a little more open ended, like what we're doing, maybe have some faith in it. You know, in yourself to at least, like you said, at least try it and see if see if you fail at it first. Give it the old college try, right? Hey, man, so life is about showing up. Like ninety percent of what you do is about showing up. If you just show up. Great. The other ten percent is up to you, and I think a lot of people just don't don't show up. You know, I've been working on this thing for a long time. All right, cool. It's been nine months. Where is it at? Like, you have to. You the big thing I always tell people who start out doing YouTube is you have to fail, and you have to fail hard, and you have to fail big, so you can learn what worked and what didn't, and how to do it better, and how to better yourself. And those are elements that. People just don't think about. They just they see the end result. They see the end and they go, that's where I want to be. But they don't see the work and the hardship in between. And I think it's all about you have to commit. You have to dive in head first and and get your hands dirty and learn to grow and and, and fail. And that's and failure is such a bad thing, right? When you see, when you hear the word fail, it's like it instills this weird thing of, oh, that's a bad connotation. But no, you, you need to. You need to grow, and you need to learn how to grow from those experiences, if, or else you're not going to be able to go where you want to go. Yeah, I think that's the key word you said. I don't look at anything on YouTube as failure. It's growth. Yeah. Be, be, because at the end of the day, uh, the majority of YouTubers, especially those starting out, are one-man armies, right? We are um, entrepreneurs to some degree. It varies between person and person. We are our own writers, actors, you can say, voice actors. It can be uh, editors, producers, you know, uh, our own PR people at the same time. So when people ask me or they come up to me and they say something like, I have this idea, but I'm not sure what I should do with it. I've been thinking about doing this thing for months. The first thing I say to them is you have to at least do something. You have to have a starting place um, like anything else. Like there's a reason why they have TV pilots where you have to at least put something on paper or on film to see if it works. Is this a direction I want to go? I'm sure if, if you go back and watch your earliest videos, you'd be like, ooh, I wouldn't do that again. And the same with me. Well, first I'd learn how to light a room in my earlier videos. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, but there, I, I can't watch probably the first two, even maybe three years of videos I've done because I know I've grown since then. But everyone has those baby steps, right? Everyone has that sort of place where you crawl before you walk, before you run. And maybe this brings up the point, kind of the fuck you energy before about the feedback. Maybe some people um, are afraid of bad feedback or, or negative responses because you are putting yourself out in the public eye when you're on YouTube. And maybe you can speak to that a little bit about if that's something you've thought about or maybe it's not something that affects you. Oh, man. In the early days of The Completionist, I would do the most – I took my my film and theater degree and I used it as an analytical sense of how to determine data. So what I would do – and I kind of got this from MatPat uh, in, in, in the early stages. He and I were talking early on when our careers first started. And uh, a lot of what I did was I'd make a new video and I would then personally print out the first 36 hours worth of content – of comments in in massive charts and then I would take a highlighter and I would highlight all of the ones that were positive, all of the ones that were negative, all of the ones that were in the middle and all the ones that were criticism. And so I was able to look at this in different colored, colors though. Different in colors. Different colors. Yes, <laughs> okay. and I was able to look at this at this green, red, orange, yellow highlighted chart that showed me what my audience was thinking. And I did this for, I think, the first 10 episodes of The Completionist because I, as much as I was making content and learning and growing, I needed to learn what the audience early on was thinking and saying. And eventually, I stopped doing that because um, I stopped seeing the changes in the growth. Like, I, I realized that at this, you, get, you reach a point where the YouTube comments based on Google Plus and, and the evolution of YouTube and, and analytics, uh, most of them favor negative interactions. So no matter what, no matter how big I got or how small I was, the negative comments always outweighed the positive. And there was no way at that point that I could try and counterbalance my content to meet those negative needs. Because a lot of the content, a lot of the comments were contradictory and didn't really know what they were talking about. Or, you know, and, and, and so I had to take a step back and go, okay, I think I've, me personally, I have done as much as I can to craft what my content to match what the general user base wants to see. And then you obviously, then you start to really look at the big picture of, well, if this video has a hundred thousand views, but only has a thousand comments that's, you know, what 10%, 1% of the people that are watching and actually commenting and engaging in your content. And so that percentage gets bigger and bigger and smaller and smaller on both ends where the the more views I get on the video, the more comments I got. But a lot of those comments were never really about uh, my content so much as they didn't like the way that I sounded. They didn't like the way that I looked. They they racially didn't like me or, you know, they they thought my views on this one video was really bad and it ruined their image of me going forward. And you get to the point where that aspect of catering your content just stopped working really, really quickly. And so I learned a lot, but it's something that uh, I still read the comments as much as I can nowadays. And it, it, it's, it's hard because the, the con the, the, the comments are more vicious than ever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it was a good experience and I'm glad I did it. I'm glad that I learned from it and committed to it. I don't want to, I don't want to seize on one word. You said, during um, your delivery there, but you did bring up the word catering. So 
early on, you obviously wanted to put out a, 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 a video content that people wanted to see. But do you do you think that you were uh, hung up too much on trying to put out exactly what people wanted to see and to sort of sacrifice what you thought you would enjoy putting out? Or are you just trying to use catering more as a nudging towards what people you think would enjoy overall to in order to have them engage more overall and come back? I think it's more of a nudging tool. Like It's not like I was changing my content or my principles because – I was insecure in my feelings or opinions. It was more of learning, you know, uh, one of the one of my key, I feel like every year when I look back at a new season of The Completionist, I kind of look back and I go, how do I, what did I learn this year? What, what can I change differently? And this year for me, my theme has been, I can say the same thing I want without sounding a certain way. They're, the sentence, this game fucking sucks versus this game's a little rough around the edges is way different. And the audience likes to commit either way. They want it to be this or that. And so I've learned that's something that I've I've learned is that I can still say this game is not good without being an asshole, without being aggressive. And that's something that, you know, again, I, I I've picked up on that this year. And I think um you ha when it comes to your audience, it's important to to take everything with a grain of salt, like we said earlier. So you sorry. so you, so uh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, maybe go ahead. I'll, I'll, I was, no, I don't go, know if you could your thought. Ah! No, 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 uh, no, no. So, no, no. so <laughs> you're talking about minor tonal shifts in writing and in delivery of the yes. same thought, basically. So yeah. you're saying in the in the past, maybe if you were rougher in in certain terms, some of your audience wouldn't respond to that or like that. But you felt you can get the same point across by being a little more smooth or maybe more quote unquote professional, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and I think I think time and place is important too, right? Like if a game really sucks, I can actually speak openly about it. But if a game is controversial, where it's it's good but bad, or bad but good, and everyone's down the middle, that's where you know really everyone's looking at you. You know, I I loved ukulele, even though everyone hated it. So I got a lot of scrutiny for being the one guy in the world that actually liked that game. So you know, there, <laughs> you were the the one the, the yeah. one person. <laughs> Now there were a lot more, uh, but you know, there's there's that aspect of of, I, it's almost like wrestling, right? Everyone wants to see what YouTuber is on their favorite, like on their favorite. Is there are they a heel this week or are they a baby face? But you take those two things and you're like, but we're fucking people. Like that's not really a thing to really worry about. Um, we're not we're not just personas, right? We're actually yeah, exactly. Human beings. Yeah, and and that's that's something that's always scary, right? Is Sometimes you go to conventions and you meet people and they they talk to you like you're a YouTube video and it's like I can actually hear what you're saying like that's inappropriate that's rude. I remember <laughs> one story from in particular. We're getting sidetracked, but I think it was an SGC where you came up to me pretty upset because there was uh, some some person there. I want to say it was SGC 2013 or 14 where they're like, yeah, they came up to me and were really really rude and they're bothering me. I remember saying to you, hey, do you want me to take care of this? Because you were you were pretty upset. I remember at the time. I don't know if you remember that story or not. Yeah, I I remember it, and I think I, I don't remember what the context was, or what the person said, but I definitely remember feeling that way because. I'm either I'm I'm usually pretty bummed out. You're pretty bummed out. I'm usually pretty good at at being like, well, thanks for coming, anyways. Bye. But it it just takes that one person just to get under my skin, and it's like it's like freaking symbiote style. Like I'm like, oh, I feel sick. Do you do you you feel you encounter that uh, more than other YouTubers about people come up to you and feel the need, or they feel they can be more open about either disliking or disagreeing with something you did in a past video? Um. Pre- prior to the Greg stuff, that never happened. 
that happened. Like I think that's why it hit me so hard when it did. It was happen it'd, be, it'd was, be rare. Yeah, it would be really rare. Maybe one one out of every eighteen conventions I went to, someone would say something like that. Um, and then after everything happened with Greg, uh, that would happen three or four times a convention, and that's that. At that point, I just learned how to pivot, and that was that was really weird because I just didn't know how to respond. But um, yeah, it was definitely really bizarre. <laughs> with, 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 in terms of the Greg stuff, was it just uh, comments that they disagree with you, or they now hated you because of what went down? They they hated me with what went down. They they don't they 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 almost like it's like a peaceful protest to my face. Like I don't watch your videos anymore because he's not there, and he was the reason why I watched. And you're not funny anymore, and you're you're not good, and I think you suck. And it's like, and all I would say was, sorry, you feel that way. Thanks for watching. Best of luck. Like, and that would get under their nerves because. They couldn't get a rise out of they you. They couldn't get a rise person. out of me, and I, 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 and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't give that to them. Hmm, that's interesting. I'm never sure. I, I think I might have had a couple of comments like that like, to my face, but usually they're a little more jokey. I would say in terms of going after me for something I said in the video, but like I could sit, tell there was some good humor underneath it. But you're saying in these cases it was just directly hostile and just basically the the vocal version of a YouTube comment that they might type out yeah 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 and 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 those who those who'd come up and say like a snarky comment like that in regards to a game or an opinion you could tell from a mile away that they were it was such a joke it was such Mm -hmm. it they were having fun with the video that i made and they were having fun with me in real time and those those moments i love because it's like you know i love really bad games or i'll like i hate games that are really popular and so you know, someone will be like, how could you hate this game? And I'm like, oh, that's just my opinion. And we have a, a nice joke. But those kinds of comments, those those types of comments definitely disappeared over the years as the more drama-filled ones started flying at me. Which I think is interesting that I think on average, though, these sort of negative interactions would just go up just because from what I've seen of you, and I, and I, I even gave you shit for this, uh, I see you kill yourself at conventions. Uh, for your fans. And this isn't me kissing your ass. Uh, but I've seen you at probably at least half a dozen conventions where Well, don't you... don't don't doubt yourself, Pat, cuz you're if I'm busting ass, so are you. You're the one selling them books and you're in the thick no, of it. No, you're... no, 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 here's the difference. You have you have about four times the the, the subscribers as me. So that means <laughs> that means four times the amount of people show up to see you on average versus me. That I will see you just walking around the floor with like a, it's like a scene from like a Beatles movie with like twenty people <laughs> around you, and you're just constantly taking pictures and and talking and signs up while you're walking to your credit, and you have a big smile on your face. And I'll see you at the beginning of the day, then I won't see you for like three hours, and then I'll see you nearly passed out, like dead tired by the end of the day. And I'll be like, Gerard, what the hell happened? Like, yeah, it went, it went on for like two hours longer than I thought it would. I'm just like, son of a bitch, Gerard. You got to take a break at some point, right? <laughs> I mean, you're only human. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, at a convention, I, I, I feel like the vibes are so fun and positive and everyone's so happy to be there. And so I want, I want to also be as happy as they are to see me as, as the, when I see them. And uh, I feel like I do a pretty good job with that. I feel like some conventions – Depending on where I am, sometimes I'll be fully in like that mode, and other times I'll be like, "I'm going to be Hollywood and hide in my hotel room." 
Yeah, I, which which I I guess if you have uh, I, I think we talked about earlier in the year your insane uh, convention schedule this year, where it was like what almost every week for like a couple of months at some point. It was yeah from from April until July I had a convention or it was either a convention a video like brand deal which involved me flying out to a company's location in a different state or. I was at a personal event that was like in a different country and that was all back to back to back for I think it was 15 weeks straight. And you still managed to put out videos. Yep, every every Friday completions came out, every beard bros every day. <laughs> you son of a bitch, this work ethic. So you're going to these conventions, you're jet lagged and I know cuz I've seen it. I, we 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 roomed together in Norway, we can talk about that. And you're recording freaking voiceovers after the convention at night. <laughs> you're sitting yeah. there. You're like Pat. Do, do you mind? I got to record some voiceover to go to sleep. Yeah, I'm like Gerard. You're a machine. I can't stop you anyway. <laughs> if I said screw you, you would punch me and do it anyway. But I, so I see you do this. It's not bullshit. I know you have a, a team that helps you, but you still are working as you're traveling. What is that like when you feel like it, you know? Because conventions to me are still work in some respects. I mean, people have gotten on me. We're saying, oh, how bad can it be? You're flying around and going to these conventions. Like it's it's actually work still. It's not like it, it takes a lot of energy out, out of you. And obviously we, we choose this life. Uh, but w- tell me about that. Like, do you feel sometimes at these conventions like, oh, my God, I made a mistake? Just not, not necessarily because you have to talk to a thousand fans or just because you, there's no downtime at all even because you're still on a constant schedule. You know, I, I feel like uh, if you asked Gerard that question from two years ago, it would be different from asking me now because two years ago when um, – Everything did go down. I I think I booked like 14 conventions, and my train of thought was if I see people, they'll they'll be happy that I'm around, that I'm showing up, that I'm still a part of the show, that I'm still there for the fans. And uh, the crowds uh, were bigger, obviously, because my channel blew up in 2015. 2015 was the year that my channel tripled in size, um, and. Uh, it was that was tough. That was super tough because again, those were those were those negative comments were flying at me hardcore, and there was nothing I could do to to pivot. But 2016, 2017, with Big Bad Bosses and um, my personal channel launching, and the completionist really taking a, a bigger strides to tell a more narrative as opposed to a review. I, I saw these changes, and it made me feel so much. I felt happier because I was kind of in control of what I was doing again as a YouTuber, as I've learned. And I'm sure as you've learned too, Pat, when you make these videos, YouTube favors them differently, depending on tags, depending on names, depending on your content. Is it long form? Is it short form? And you kind of get into this routine of constantly getting ready to pivot your entire career based on a stupid code. And I think traveling to me has made it all worth it because I can just say, you know what? At the end of the day, screw the code, screw YouTube, screw everything there. I am here in this convention, in this city, in this state, in this country for these people. And that to me is so much more fun. And yes, it is work. There's autographs, there's merch to sell, there's things to sign, there's all this stuff, but I think it it definitely is worth it. So you saw this, these, these working, not even working vacations, these these uh, work uh, weekends as a respite from the demands of YouTube. Correct. So even though you're still working during those weekends and maybe editing in your hotel room after a seven-hour convention day, you're getting away for part of that. It's something different. When you said in 2015 you didn't feel in control 
of what you were doing? Was that because of stuff that went down with Greg or was something else that was happening at the same time? It was a little bit of both. So it, the first half of the year with the Greg stuff, I had to pivot my content almost entirely. How do I make people uh, want to stick around for a show that no longer has a, a, this sidekick character? And not as not as jokey, not as not, not as, as jokey, overly more, humorous. Yes. Yeah, and, and focus more about the heart and soul of the game itself and the conversation. I'm, I'm putting in all I put in all my chips on people. Loving video games over my own personality and my own investment. And the show changed a lot. And the first few months were a little rough for everyone, both behind the scenes and for the audience. But come September, November, September and, uh, and October, I had made awesome videos like Pepsi Man, which is like, you know, something I'm very popular for. And, and my Mario Maker series and my Mario Maker video, those, those videos in 2015 were some of my best. Because they highlighted my strengths as a completionist and my investment in the show. And then at the end of October, as my channel, according to my analytics and the way I was growing the channel and the way I was creating content, I had a good idea of how I wanted to make the show and what I wanted to go with it. At the end of, no- the end of October, uh, YouTube released YouTube Red. And that changed all of the algorithmic growth that I had. I went from a channel that was going to be hitting a million subscribers by the end of the year to a channel that got 60,000 subscribers over the case of seven months. And it was like hitting this massive roadblock where I was making this show that I loved, that was growing, that was doing really well, and it just stopped working. It just it, the, the YouTube algorithms just stopped favoring my channel. And while I was getting the views on the newer videos, my older backlog wasn't growing. I wasn't gaining subscribers. I wasn't gaining growth. And it forced me to reevaluate my content and go, what the frick is going on here? And that was stressful for, for a good nine, ten months. So within one calendar year, you go from you're getting more success. You go through this schism with Greg. The channel then blows up. You have to redefine your own content. You see it moving in a huge, huge direction, uh, subscriber growth wise, and then it gets you think cut off at the knees because yeah. of YouTube, YouTube Red. So, was that discouraging, or did you sort of take it in stride? Because obviously the algorithms benefited you for a while to have this really rapid uh, subscriber and view growth, and now it getting cut off. That really did that. That really put a damper on your spirits at that point. Oh, absolutely. I was I was ready to call it in. I think I was done. I, I was really over everything about YouTube at that point. I went from having the highest of my high in career to my lowest, back to the highest, back to the lowest. It was crazy. And I think what really made me resurface myself as a content creator for 2016 was the album that I made for Big Bad Bosses. Um, when we when we made that album and pushed it out there, it was my own it was my own e commerce. It was my own way of saying, Hey, I made this thing that has nothing to do with YouTube. It's independent of the content that I create. It's very fucking different. It's not you know, it's it's like your book. It's not your content. It's 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 this different thing that you've created, right? And so I, I doubled down and I, I made this album and uh the success of the album was so large financially for me and the team and everyone who worked on the album that in 2016 I took six months to reevaluate my content how do I change it how do I grow it do I adapt it to the YouTube algorithms you know do I look at the data and so I was able to really relax early on in 2016 and kind of go 
How do I change this? How do I make it feel more fun? How do I get control back of my content? And I'm glad that I did that because uh, the first half of 2016 was really rough for me. It, I, I was feeling super uninspired. I was feeling sluggish. You know, you were feeling sluggish because the growth wasn't as great, but weren't you still getting pretty good views on your videos? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I was getting okay views, and and I think what people don't people see views on videos externally, right? And they look at it and they go, oh, that's a lot of views. But what they don't see is the retention. They don't see the da- the data behind each video. They don't see the comments, likes, dislike ratios behind the scenes, and what that does to each channel, and and the tags and and the thumbnails, and it it YouTube. Today, in today's ecosystem, YouTube is no longer about content. Content is no longer king. It is about how to advertise your content based on the current platform. And that current platform is consistently pivoting every single month. And you can see it in these rise of YouTubers that no one's ever heard of. You know, a YouTuber goes from having 100,000 subs to, you know, 15 million in literally six to eight months. And it's because they figured out how to game the system. You know, drama YouTubers, prime example, things like Keemstar and those guys, they all learned that by using words like exposed, disturbing, disgusting, tagging it with all their videos of uh, all the YouTubers in those videos, they've learned to algorithmically charge the YouTube algorithm to favor them. And so content almost is unimportant nowadays, which is super discouraging. And that's been the one thing that I've been so keen on is I want this content to stay the best. I want to do the best version of it, but how do I keep doing what I do and keep growing the way I want to grow when the YouTube algorithms are saying, stop doing what you're doing. It's not working. You're not growing. Well, but isn't that comes down to art though, correct? I mean, what is this? What are, what are we putting out? What are we creating? Are we, are we doing something that we know is, uh, gaming some sort of mathematical equation on Google's back end or are we producing content that we we like that we know other people are liking still years later but maybe it's not kicking in that little that ignition factor in order to get this end over end subscriber growth and I think that's the question I've asked myself in the past because I knew what was popular on YouTube years back. I knew if I stopped do- started doing lots of different other content, like when top 10 videos were extremely popular, for example, I knew I could do that. Um, but is my heart into it? Is that something that I can look back on and say I'm proud of that work? Or is that something I know that I'm just going to cash in in the short term? So this isn't advice. This is me just saying what I believe, is that even if I never got – I never got into that sort of by luck or by by faking it. Got into that that um, algorithm role that others have enjoyed. Can I still be satisfied with what I've done? Can I still look back at what I've done and say, you know what, that's good work. I know people like it. I know it because they're they're still sticking around. And I know that because you know conventions still ask me out uh, to you know to talk about my content, and I know people are going to stay with me. I know my Twitter followers still like what I'm uh, handing out there, goofiness. Uh, and 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 else and else elsewise likewise um, so maybe that's where I come back to with that maybe I look at uh, like you said maybe there are YouTubers that got 10 million subscribers in one year does that mean though two years from now when things are in their favor they're still going to be around doing what they're doing to the same extent I don't know right can 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 <laughs> the difference between that content and our content is you can take our content and you can put it on a DVD. You can put it on a television show. You can put it on a showcase. You can put it in a museum. You can put it somewhere where someone who doesn't necessarily know the content they're watching is a show format that's long form that actually has highs and lows and has overall editing and feel to it. Whereas if you take 
a drama video or a news video on a YouTuber, you can't take that and put that on television. You can't take that and put it on Amazon or Netflix. You can't take those kinds of content, even Let's Plays, for example. You can't take a Let's Play and throw it on TV, even though Disney is doing that. You, you can't really do that and have it be this content that not only you're proud of, but one that's going to reflect like this time capsule of content. When, when, when we make the videos that we make, you can watch them and you can clearly see, oh, this is not only a review or an, a retrospective or even things like the video game years, which I know you've put your, your passion into, which I love. It, it's this behind-the-scenes aspect of like the times of the games and who was there and all this stuff. That's all stuff that you can say, I'm proud of this. People can watch and people can consume it. The other content you can't on a massive global scale. Well, it's, it's, it's fast food. It's yeah. fast food versus versus a, a fine gourmet dinner. That's sure. the way. I mean, you, you watch a drama video. It's potato chips. It's 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 there. It's it's greasy. It's slimy. It's easy to, to put down a bunch of them. But um, yeah, you're gonna look back a couple years from now. Why did I eat all those potato chips? Yeah. And and who's gonna go back and remember those chips you had back then? That that Absolutely. that particular package of Doritos. But yeah, it works though for now. It's like TMZ. I, I, you know that's that's the way I look at you know that sort of genre and yeah it, and they might fall out of favor I don't know if the apocalypse hits certain genres of videos more than others where yeah maybe you get a lot of views but it really doesn't do much in terms of your revenue so they got to get out of it I, I I'm not going to get out of what I'm doing right now I've never made a ton of money doing the videos I've done uh, but I, I make enough that I, I can still do it if that makes sense you know and that keeps me going and stuff well stuff like video game years is something that. I always bemoan the time that went into it, but yeah, I can look back at it and be proud of it, even if I knew it never found an audience on, on YouTube. I think Jared one time tweeted out, "This is the best YouTube show no one knows about." So, it's it's a bittersweet feeling, but at least I can say, "Yeah, I did that. It's cool." You know, it's there. This, this is turning into a plug for uh, watch video game years on Amazon Prime. It's on yo, there. you all, <laughs> no, no shit, you all should. It's so good. It's I appreciate so good. that. Um, so what, you, what you're talking about also, though, is, I guess, legacy. What legacy do you want to leave behind in your content, correct? Like, 10 years from now, how do you want to be remembered? Is that, in your current content, how you think about it? Do you look towards the future in terms of what am I, uh, you know, 10 years from now, what am I going to be doing? How am I going to be, build, be building myself off my current brand? Or how is this going to evolve into how others uh, view me, other business relationships? Absolutely. Uh, I... I, I firmly believe that, uh, especially in today's digital age, whenever you make anything, whether it's a tweet or a Facebook post or a Reddit post or, in this case, content on YouTube or Vimeo or Twitch, whatever it may be, you have a digital footprint of what anyone can find of you. And whether you're a jerk online or you're someone who likes to crash, like to passionately create, you have a legacy to leave behind you in some regard. And... If you have that popularity, I think it kind of behooves us to put a little bit more effort into what we create. I think it's, we almost have a responsibility to try and entertain if that's what you want to do. And and I, I think legacy is very important. And I think it's something that a lot of YouTubers don't think about. I think they, they're kind of in this mindset of, well, I've got 15 minutes to capitalize off of this. So I'm going to take those 15 minutes and, and crash and burn. Or I'm going to take a step back and see what I can do to keep this 15 minutes go another 15 minutes. And I, and I, I think it's super important that people don't really think about. 
Well, it's short-term versus long-term outlook, correct? Absolutely. Uh, where it's like, what can I do now? I know this is the, the hot trend. Going back to like drama videos because that's the big thing now. Like, I know this is a hot trend. I know I can get big just reporting on other YouTubers like an online TMZ. But three years from now, what's that's gonna like? What, what is that gonna get me? Is that gonna open any doors? Is that gonna expand to other possible content? That's the, how I have to look at these sort of decisions and things like that. You know, I, I really do. Um, but yeah, video game years that's opened a little bit of doors just because people at least respect it, even if no, no one's seen it. I actually had someone tell me this, and this isn't me uh, bragging about it, but something happened recently when I told someone about a project that I was working on behind the scenes that someone told me, is like, yeah, I didn't think much of it, but then I heard you were involved in it, you meaning me in this case. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Did I build up some sort of weird cachet by working on various projects over the years? Is this, <laughs> is this, does this mean more versus just views, I guess, or, or revenue coming in currently? Is what you're outputting... Uh, is it is it some sort of weird respect level you're growing that's that's not necessarily parallel with subscriber growth and and views and maybe that's where we're getting at too where YouTube is becoming um, I always argue it's more important or just as important as a means versus an end I don't know if you want to comment on that I I've never viewed YouTube as the end platform you know I've always thought of it as a stepping stone um, I've always tried to create a TV show on YouTube. Um, whether it be the completionist or my old content that no one watches anymore that, uh, you have to try and find, um, I've always been <laughs> to search out for it specifically yeah, yeah, Gerard's yeah. old ass videos. <laughs> They're there. They're there. Um, but I think what I, what I found myself doing was I wanted to try and create a platform or a, a thing to the next step. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a storyteller. I, I, I want to make documentaries. I want to make behind the scenes you know, info stuff like Norm, Norm, the gaming historian makes the content I've always wanted to make. His stuff is so freaking good that that's what, that's kind of where I always wanted to see myself on a more professional, grander scale where people can consume that content. Norm, Norm did it. And that's why I love Norm so much because, you know, that's, that's what he does so good. You know, Satchel Drake's of Satchback's Goods, he had these great videos too. And, and Javed, Good Blood Games, these guys create this content that is not meant for an audience other than the one that's currently watching. They, they're made for like a Netflix, an Amazon, a, a a general consumer standpoint. And I think YouTube is not about that. YouTube is about curation of types of content. You have your gaming YouTubers, you have your, your beauty vloggers, you have your musicians, you have your live stream gamers, which is different from your gamers. You have these different subsidiary uh, groups. And uh, to me, YouTube has never been the platform to, to end it all. It, it, it's what you said. It's, it's always been a means. It's never been an end. And I think that from a, from a financial income standpoint, YouTube has done all but help the creators in regards to making the, cor- the the correct turns and pivots they need to transform the platform, whether it's moving on to something like a YouTube pro- Red produced show or moving off the platform somewhere else. They, they the, the platform is too large to give a shit about everyone as a whole, and that's kind of their own fault. Well, curated co- uh, content. I mean, you were talking about different levels of content. Someone gets a webcam uh, they get their mic, they can make a video and upload it in, in 10 minutes versus something that takes a team or is well-produced like you put out. Still weekly content, which boggles my mind how that's possible uh, to do that. <laughs> 
or something like uh, James Roloff doing AVGN, Norm doing The Gaming Historian, uh, video game year, stuff where it takes a lot of behind-the-scenes time, and time equals money, mm-hmm. obviously. And it's become more and more apparent that YouTube is not the place to... Maybe not... You can put it on YouTube, but that's not where you're going to display it and show it off in order to, quote-unquote, I guess, uh, get your, quote-unquote, money and time back for the production costs, for the time it takes. Because people worry about, well, who cares about making money? Well, time is money because if you you don't recoup those costs, you don't have the time to do that because you have to do another job in order to to pay the mortgage and to eat. You know, so that's what it it comes down to. But I I do love the fact that Amazon Prime now accepts people uploading content. But it's but it's very specific. They're not gonna. It's not gonna be YouTube content, and so far it isn't. It's gonna be. They're only gonna accept and probably focus and spotlight highly well produced content, you know, serialized content. So to me, that's another outlet that's that's coming that maybe Blip tried and failed to do. But Amazon has the money behind it where they can make it lasting. For example, so I'm I'm happy that while it's not gonna ever be a competitor directly to YouTube, it's another outlet for online creators to look at for the future. I think we're we're at a tipping point right now where YouTube doesn't know what they want to do with YouTube, and I think they look at things like Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, and they see themselves as a we can be that, and the reality is they already were that. They already were the Hollywood aspects that these companies have been striving to do. They just didn't know how to package it or didn't know how to to present it. And so that's when things like YouTube Red, which is a really bad name for their platform. Um, which, by the way, they still don't advertise anywhere. They don't. I, I think I've seen one commercial or two in the past year and a half for it. I, I'm not going to – I know a lot of friends who are making YouTube Red shows, and the amount of bullshit that goes beyond – the construction of those shows is so fascinating. They don't even have a budget for advertising. And it's like, you have YouTubers in the shows. That's your advertising like arm. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's not bizarre. hard. It's not hard. <laughs> or, or how about this? This is, this is a, a free, free. Hey, YouTube, YouTube red, I'm doing your work for you. Uh, this is free YouTube Red content and also free promotional tool with a small kickback. What if they give – not that this is to be every YouTuber, but YouTubers that have proven their salt that are quote-unquote verified. I think I'm verified. You are. You know, ones that aren't just fly by night. Yeah. Give us the uh, just the ability, just the ability to do Red exclusive content on our channel and then with some sort of kickback to us if we get people to sign up for it. Doesn't everyone win at that point? Because yeah. we get the we get the word out about YouTube Red, which is a great product. If it's only ten bucks a month, um, or and or when YouTube TV comes along, and if they package it with that to everyone, they get free YouTube Red content, or at least they're not paying for the production costs. They they give us a kickback for people we get there, and it's an organic way of growing it because then YouTubers can use it as little or as much as they want to, and not be forced to. If I'm a YouTube Red person, what if I see all that exclusive content and I don't care about any of it? What if I see someone doing a show? It's like, well, I never watched that that content in my life. I'm not going to sign up just for that. You know, I think they're at a weird spot where, like you said, they're they're going out to try to compete with a, a Netflix. But I don't think I don't think they realize that that like when Netflix is paying out the ass for all this exclusive content, they already have figured out their return on that investment beforehand. 
I don't think they've, they know what's happening with that YouTube Red content. Like, it's very telling that without almost a second thought, they went and can- canceled that, that PewDiePie second season YouTube Red show at the drop of a hat. I'm not sure they would have done that if they, if they knew the first season was a massive success and getting new Red subscribers to it. That was just a very telling moment to me that they're still throwing crap against the wall, I think. When it comes to this platform, like maybe I don't know if, if you agree with that. I'm I I'm with you 100, percent and I think that I I my biggest gripe with YouTube Red is how the payout system works. It encourages competition. Like if you like, for instance, have the NES Punk fans who are listening to this. If you have YouTube Red and you want to and you want to give Pat your ten dollars of YouTube Red. That means you can you can only watch Pat the NES Punk. You have to watch Pat the NES Punk consistently for one month straight, and only Pat the NES Punk in order for him to receive your ten dollars. Sounds good to me, guys. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the global scale, right? The idea is, well, if I'm subscribed to 100 YouTubers and I'm watching them all together evenly, then you take 100 100 YouTubers or whatever, and you split that you know, $10 pie any way you want, people are going to make 50 cents a user or 25 cents a user. And that's that's fine, right, if if there's enough people doing that. But the reality is that people are buying YouTube Red to get rid of the ads for the most part so they have a, a, a ad-free experience on YouTube, which, let's be real, the ads are intrusive. And two, they want to watch that content only for that user that they want to support. You know, if you want to support MatPat or the Game Grump Show... Both shows I actually like, and I think they're some of the best on the platform so far, but it's not enough because after you watch that content, you can be like, well, that was fun. Click unsubscribe. And now you have watched that content and now it is gone. You know, like, well, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird zone. It's a very weird zone that does not inspire. It just, it just creates this weird cloud of weird economy. <laughs> It's a weird economy, E-commerce. but overall, it is a positive YouTube red, red because the amount of ads that the, – the, the, the split that is going towards the creators, I think it's like – what is it? Is it 4 or $5 out of the 10 that goes towards the creators? You're not going to watch – any user is not going to watch $5 worth of ads in one month anyway. It's going to be a lot less than that. So overall, the net win is for the, the YouTuber, content creator still. Correct. However, to your point, there should be something like with Twitch where – if I sign up, I say, well, this person got me to sign up or this is my preferred YouTuber. So they get a, a, they get a, a, a somewhat larger cut or they get a bonus. That makes a lot of sense. I don't care if it's 20 cents a month. You know, just something like that to incentivize, again, you, you promoting it. Otherwise, what's your incentive to promote YouTube Red directly? Do you have one? No. <laughs> you know, well, I, I don't have one. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't, I don't give a shit about YouTube Red. <laughs> Well, the other positive though that is that those ad pools from that user that sign up get back into the get thrown into the, the bag the, the larger pool of YouTube ads to be fulfilled because the not dirty secret is that there's not enough ads to go around per views. Yeah, there no, just isn't. Not only that, but YouTube Red is not supported internationally. So how are users across the world? Which, by the way, we've been to international conventions. There are a lot more international folks that go to a convention than an American than than local state folks do, and that's because. Mm-hmm. The, the international folks are more ravenous. They're more. They're more like I want to see this person because this person's coming from the states and they want to support that person. A lot of my Patreon and GameWisp users are from different countries and they're happy to support us on those platforms because they feel like they're personally contributing. And those are the guys that we really appreciate. Versus like, oh well, they now they they have to buy YouTube Red 
Oh, and they can't use YouTube Red, or they have to buy the platform, the content per episode on YouTube Red. And it's like, then then decide: is it on demand or is it a streaming platform? You can't be both. Sure. Yeah, um, I was kind of surprised by the first couple of NES charity marathons just to see the number of, of donations that came in from Europe, most notably Scandinavian nations. And again, that happened with my first – the first real merchandise I ever had was my first DVD, which was uh, – I think came out four years ago. And I was – yeah, I was shocked by the proportion of overseas European sales of the DVD. It was a much larger percentage than the percentage of those people watching the videos. So I was like, wow, yeah, they, they want to support. They, they, they want to have a, find a way. Maybe it's a cultural thing. I don't, I don't know. But they, they want to find a way to support us. Yeah. And it's just give, give them reason, a reasonable way to do it, and I think they would sign up and do it. You know, make, make YouTube Red accessible. Like I said, give creators an incentive to want to sign people up. And I'm still shocked they haven't figured that out. You know, two, what are we, two years in? To YouTube Red, and yeah. they, they still haven't figured it out. They, that should have been figured out rolling it out. So I know YouTube, uh, the YouTube TV might incorporate some aspects or try to do that with YouTube Red. It really should. They should bundle them up together. But um, yeah, figure it out. Help us out here, YouTube. This isn't going to come a YouTube rant at all, uh, is it? <laughs> uh, I hope not. I actually, I actually got offered to to pitch several YouTube Red shows, and all of my pitches uh, they did not like. <laughs> Really? Yeah, they were like, these are all bad. And I'm like, oh, interesting, okay. <laughs> are you at liberty to share any for uh, fun? I, I, we'll see. I'm, I'm still in the – one of them I'm, I'm still in the talks of pitching to uh, Amazon um, or another another platform. I might just pitch it to a TV network. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's unfortunate because YouTube was like, let's have a sit-down meeting. And so I had the meeting and I pitched and they were like – well, we'll get we'll get back to you, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh okay. So this was you guys just you guys just didn't read the room. I didn't read the room very well. Okay, sorry about that. And <laughs> and uh, and how did uh, that how did that feel at the time? It was like p- pitching to a Hollywood studio or movie. And you're like, ooh, that was my opportunity. It got crushed. Well, not only that, but you you'd assume that like they I, work with you, give you well, feedback. You not even that, but like YouTube is the platform you know they were i i would thought they would know my content i thought they'd know my audience and know what i was trying to create and and do and it was one of those things where i i pitched a couple of ideas and then they came out with me and they pitched me two ideas that were nothing like my my content and i'm like why would i make something that my audience would not want to see i want to make stuff that i i want to see <laughs> so you think that they were just applying what maybe had worked for other youtubers to yeah. you without without knowing who or what you did so they basically just called you in because they saw your subscriber count. Well, that's the funny thing is that uh, that was during my trajectory of getting to a million subs in a year. And so they were uh-huh. like, oh, if we get in with him now, he'll be fine. And then YouTube algorithms changed again and uh, they they stopped picking up the phone. <laughs> so now you're worthless because you're only at 800,000 subscribers, not yeah. a million. Yeah, if I had – if I had, literally, I think the only requirement for YouTube Red Show is you have to have good retention and you have to have a million subs. And then like from there, it's like negotiating and getting the right the right YouTuber in the right place. But but what does that do for you besides obviously they probably give you a payoff for producing the show? I, if, if most of your fans can't see it anyway, <laughs> is that is that worth investing time into? I'm just thinking out loud now. If you got, if you got the opportunity to say, okay, we want you to do this YouTube Red Show, even though we're not promoting YouTube Red. And you don't get a cut of signing people up to YouTube Red. We're going to have you do the show. Is that sort of just cachet saying, oh, I'm a YouTuber that did a YouTube Red show? Is that what it really amounts to? 
I think for for me, right, I talked about it earlier about how I've been wanting YouTube was never the the end game. It's always the means, and I've been wanting to move to the next platform to see what's there. And um, I've always wanted to make more more content, more different content, more fun, diverse content. And I, I would have loved to have seen that avenue when a company gave me the proper funds to let me create what I want to create instead of me self-funding everything and not quite doing everything the way that I want to. Um, obviously, if you have a massive budget for a show or for a film or documentary, whatever you're working on, it's a different vibe because you have all this capital to make exactly what you want versus, oh, this is my own budget, which means it's coming out of my own pocket, which means I'm not going to spend the the, my, the highest amount on the camera and the crew and the budget and all that stuff. So I would have loved to explore that possibility, but now I definitely have no interest. Well, doesn't Patreon sort of fill that gap? Do you ever think about, let's? I have a good show idea, let's see if people are interested enough to fund it from the outside? Well, that's kind of what I did. I, I recently relaunched the Patreon back in August, and... Uh, we, I did that. I said, hey, here's my show, Defend It. It used to be a show that I did all the time. And, I remember uh, that, yeah. And, uh, you know, I need this minimum budget to make it, and uh, people wanted to see it. And so now we've hit that goal, and uh, actually it comes out, the first episode comes back next week. So that's kind of my way of doing it, and and uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think Patreon and GameWisp are great ways to create more content. But at the same time, it's kind of like going up. It's like taking a step forward and going a step back. When you have things like demonetization claims going all across the board, Patreon and GameWisp are great ways to empower the creator to have enough support and funding in the case that YouTube doesn't go well. But for us, it's never really been our crutch. It's been like a, we want to do more. You know, we want to make it bigger and better. And now, because of demonetization and how it's working in the algorithms, it's now becoming, oh, we're going to need to depend on Patreon and GameWisp because the platform is starting to dry out. Uh, but, but, but for one-off shows or new ideas, is that would you ever think about going to Kickstarter to do like a season? Say, say okay, I want to fund 13 episodes of Defend It, and I know it's going to cost this amount of money to produce it. I'm going to ask for that amount and see if people want to do it. Is that something that appeals to you, or, or does that sort of scare you to, to use Kickstarter? I'm a little scared to use Kickstarter. I've, if I did do that, I'd want it to be a one-shot thing, like a film or or like a, a almost like a mini series where it's like this is start, middle, and end. For serialized content, that's where I'd get nervous about because uh, then you have the conversation of oh, well, season two was good, but season three sucked, and and I, I, w- I wasted my money because on season two I felt like it was well spent, but season three they really jumped the shark, you know. And it's like that that stuff always bums me out. It's different when you're doing Kickstarters for things like DVD box sets because it's like, oh, I know this content, I already love it, I want to see more behind the scenes or more special stuff behind it. That's different than being like, I'm going to create a show that's six episodes or twelve episodes, and it works for for celebrities who have producing companies, you know, things like Veronica Mars, when that came back, everyone was like, yeah, take my money. And with, <laughs> and with, uh, with Nathan Fillion and, uh, you know, and their, their, their show, the comic con show, the con, con artist, whatever it's called about the comic con circuit. Like again, prime example of how they did it right. It was like a short mini series situation, but serialized content to me is kind of a risk on Kickstarter. And I, I feel like, if I do use it for that, it's going to be for a film or a mini series where it's just a, one, a one-time series, a one-time, one-time ten- thing. Yeah, sure. Pat and Gerard go travel around the world show, something like. 
we, we both need some time off, and we can we can do a travel log show. Perfect. That's the future of YouTube. Travel logs. There you go. Let's do it. There you go. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, where we're going to be at in ten years. Whew. I mean, we're 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 almost at both of us. Uh, not the twilight of our YouTube years. We're in like the middle age. I want to say. Yeah. Of our our YouTube years, and in ten years from now, I try to ask this of various people and some people say i'll be doing the exactly same thing someone said i'm uh, I'm probably won't be doing this anymore i'll be doing something somewhat connected do you see yourself moving on to other projects maybe being more behind the scenes big big gerard producer guy with the gold chain walking around or uh do you see yourself in the same mode you are now but maybe just expanded um you know i i i want to go to television and film i want to i want to expand and whether that means making more gaming content or making actual true content that's different, um, I I want to I want to I want to get off the platform and make things where people can see what I'm making on a larger scale. And you know, do I want to win awards for things? That'd be great. Only if the stuff's good. But I think that's where I want to go. I do want to go to television. I do want to go to film. I do want to be able to have what I create seen on the masses in a larger scale. And while I have that audience on YouTube right now, uh, the platform does not let me expand upon it. I have to put in all the groundwork. I have to, like you said earlier, we are one men armies, even though we have teams helping us sometimes. We are our own PR firm. We are our own merch guy. We're our own uh, a- advertising marketing thing. You know, like we, we do all that work. Um, and it'd be nice to get off the platform and, and build bigger projects and bigger ships. I, I want to be able to ha- to one day have that clout where um, if someone comes to me and says, I want to make this cool cartoon, I want to make this cool film, I want to make a video game, and I go, all right, let me hear your pitch. And I like the pitch and I go, great, I'm in. Let's make this. And, you know, the name Gerard Khalil actually has weight when it comes to producing that thing. We can get financers or venture capitalists or anyone to come to the table because of who was involved. You know, when prime example of Game Grumps, right? Like when Dan Harmon got involved with Good Game, immediately everyone was like, oh shit, creator of Rick and Morty and Community working with the Game Grumps, working with Jesse Cox and Michelle Morrow. Those are three different pyramids of different people who don't really work together coming together to create this one cool thing. And the weight of all three of them individually combining into one is like a huge synergy that's pretty freaking cool and that's kind of what i want to try and aim for when hopefully one day when we get off the platform if that ever happens <laughs> we're not 75 years old still still doing a one a week uh, completionist video so who knows it'll be the completionist the, the fourth generation Woo! it'd be like doctor it'd be like doctor who you just re- keep regenerating just the kill, kill, kill me <laughs> off and get someone else to take my spot I'll be I'll be the third the third completionist regeneration for me. I'll be the I'll be the old one. You don't want um, you, don't, you don't want that job. You don't want that. <laughs> It'll turn me gray. Um so maybe maybe you're predicting some sort of future. Um uh where yeah, the YouTubers move on from just content creators to behind the scenes creatively producing more, helping out and like you said synergies. Um Going to Netflix, going to Amazon Prime, going to Hulu and producing stuff. Uh, because cause like you said, it'd be great to do that with just TV directly or movies. But I think by and large it hasn't worked out that way where YouTubers have done a, sort of a seamless uh, transition to those other mediums. Either like been one-off uh, like movies or something that's kind of happened and sort of fallen off. Yeah, it's because people, people don't understand how to like – 
You know, I, I, I auditioned for a few shows to be host for on things that were on like Spike TV or now not Spike, but Encore, whatever the frick that network's called nowadays. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, the people expect results right away. They expect the success to come out of it if you throw someone's YouTube name at a TV show. Like I think Hannah Hart has her own cooking show right now on Food Network and Grace Helbig had her own talk show on, on E! or something like that. And it's like these are massive YouTubers that nowadays don't pull the largest numbers that they used to. But they, it took them a while to get off the platform. And when they got off the platform, they're in that balance of my content and my audience is large and supportive, but not as it used to be because the platform has changed. And so, it, again, it's like a few steps forward, a couple steps back. It's almost like you can't have a foot in both worlds. Yeah. It's, have- it's, it's almost like you have to make a decision. Am I going to TV and movies? This is all behind. Like this, It's going to be hard to be as competitive or keep up with what I was doing before. Absolutely. You know, either treat it as a transition or not. I think I think a great example is someone like uh, we both love Andre Andre Meadows, and that I see him getting all these awesome uh, hosting gigs, working for Sci Fi, doing things here and there. But it's 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 like they don't the people hiring him. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. It's like they don't care, or it's almost incidental that he has a YouTube following. He's obviously very talented, but they're not capitalizing on his his YouTube channel and what he brings to that. It's almost like it's a t- entirely separated. Whenever I see him on stage with these celebrities and these people, I always think to myself, Andre can be doing a hell of a lot more. This guy is a hell of a lot more talented and a lot funnier than what they're allowing him to do on that stage. That's what I always think when I see that. So it's almost like they're two different worlds that are almost just incidentally connected, at least at this point in time. That's how I'm seeing it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't know about you, but when was the last time you've been to a GameStop? Like, when you go into GameStop nowadays, they have kind of funny Game Attack, Screw Attack, uh, Funhouse, and uh, Rooster Teeth Achievement Hunters on all their displays playing. And so you walk into a GameStop, and it's those personalities and those hosts talking about those games, doing Let's Plays, doing interviews. That's awesome. That's a means of showing the industry, hey, when you empower the community that's watching and creating content and a part of that community and is a part of the driving force as to why these games are selling and doing well, that's like giving the correct people the right keys to the right castle at the right time. But not everyone gets that. Not everyone understands that that is something that you should be doing. Um, you know, I recently just shot an episode of Storage Wars. Um did you really? I did. I did. They, 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 oh wow! Yeah, that's it's coming have, out. Uh, it's, it's coming out in October. Uh, I, not, have, I have I have heat with uh, one person on that show. <laughs> the, uh, oh, like actual beef? Were you yeah, on Renee? Were, were you on that show? No, but I've I've known uh, a handful of them from the swap meets. Oh, uh, cool, cool. Uh, Daryl, I uh, used to sell at my local swap meet. Um, uh, what's it? Dave Hester sells at this one sometimes, so I kind of know him. But Renee, uh, the the C-lister one from the show, I, I knew him well before he was on Storage. That's a whole other conversation. We won't get into that. <laughs> so tell me about, but tell me about that experience. How, how did that happen? So, uh, ironically enough, through SoCal Retro Gaming Expo, they uh, oh, they they went on to the SoCal Retro Gaming we- uh, Expo website and they went through all of the guests and tried to see who was Los Angeles local. And uh, I was the only one that's actually a true L.A. native. And they were like, oh, let's go with him. And they researched me and they were like, oh, this guy's perfect. And they had me. I can't say I didn't sign an NDA. I didn't sign anything about like 
I didn't do well, any of that stuff, but they did ask me to not share what I appraised. So I can't say what I appraised. But you're an appraiser. But I'm an okay. appraiser. So they came oh, to they, want, they came to, to see... me. <laughs> they came to me to appraise to appraise a video game for them to uh, appraise a thing. A, a retro video game or something new? A re- or retro, can... retro. Yeah. They got you and not me. Now I'm jealous, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm jealous. I know like three people on that show. Well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds fantastic. Um, um, it was fun. It was. It was. It, they did it in like a few hours. It was really, really fun and cool. Um, but I think the, the my point is, is that like people aren't going to go out and buy a subscription to Storage Wars, right? They're not going to go out and buy like a cable network show that I that I cameoed on to no, appear. Yeah, it's totally different audiences. Absolutely, obviously. absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the case in point. Sorry to cut you off. No, go for uh, it. But. Video game years, we actually tried pitching it to two pretty big locations. Actually, three. Two major gaming websites both said, uh, when we, we did video game years, this is too old for us. So <laughs> we don't want it. This is like one website in particular said, this is what the, our viewer's older brother would watch. Like We're like, what does that mean? No one's interested in video game history. But then we also pitched it to a major TV network. Uh, John D'Elia had connections back when he used to work with TV side. And he did the pitch. He showed him the video. We're talking, you know, corporate room. I wasn't there, but he was there. And he said, this is too young for us this, this, to have this as a TV series. So what? we're thinking, what, what's, what's the, the, the little five-year gap that we can win then? Where TV is too, too young. Uh, you know, these major gaming websites is too old. It's weird, but it just it just shows the mentality of these TV execs that are totally separated. And this is why TV and cable is slowly dying. Obviously, is that the the TV audience is trending older, and 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 the online content is younger. And there hasn't been someone to really come in and shake it up and connect both yet. It's been very difficult to marry the two. There there is a a specific divide right now between old media trying to be new media and new media trying to be old media. And what you have in the center are the people who are creating all the content that's drawing the viewership from both. And mm-hmm. it's it's this weird duality thing of people don't know how to bridge the gap. But it seems so simple. It seems so easy. If you are doing a cosplay show, obviously as sci-fi has done, you get cosplay professionals, which they've done. Um, you know, if you're going to do a show about E.T. and Atari and and all those, you know, um, the, the you know the the story about the company, the rise and fall, and the, the cartridges out in the in the desert, then probably should get some Atari experts who know all the ins and outs. But Sure. People don't think of that. They think, "Who can we get the views? Let's get Snoop Dogg to play Battle Battle. Uh, what is it? <laughs> Star Wars Battlefront. Let's get Snoop Dogg. Let's get James Franco. Let's get whoever. I'm sure if they play the games, the kids will want to play the games with them. And it's like, no. When no. I when I saw Ice T playing a new game, I was just like, "What? Do you think Ice T's audience is gonna?" He's going to be selling games to like what uh, I couldn't square the two together. I think what's more telling is probably this that like when you're on your like you're you're going to be on that reality show I'll put reality in air quotes and I'm on the re- I was on um, Pawn Stars. Can almost guarantee you that the casual viewer watching by chance less than like 5%, 1% will say, "Hey, that's a guy from the internet." More people are going to see the clip of you re-uploaded on YouTube. Being on that show then versus that, watching it on the TV show when it first comes out. It's true. 
I get, and I guarantee you, no matter like for Storage Wars specifically, I reached out to 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 uh, to Jay and to Norm to make sure that like I had like when I was talking about the item that I had like the proper like vernacular to make sure that like I didn't I don't because here's the thing my train of thought what, is what, what, what am I chopped liver here what am no. I come on you could have no. reached out to me I could have Pat but I I didn't want <laughs> I didn't want to bother you uh huh um but. Yeah, I, it was one of those things where I, I wanted to, like, make sure that if someone who is watching this as a video gamer or a YouTube connoisseur, they're going to see this video and be like, oh, he what he said is correct. What he said is right. And that was the biggest thing is that I, I made them, like, re-roll several takes. I was like, I didn't say it right. I didn't say I didn't pronounce it right. I didn't give the right information. And they'd be like, it doesn't matter. And I was like, no, but it does matter. It does matter sure. because to everyone who's watching this video – in TV land, they're going to see this and assume that I'm a fat neck beard guy who knows, who doesn't know shit about shit and that I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just an idiot. But to everyone else out there who's watching, they're going to judge me way more. They want to make sure that I got everything correct, what I'm talking about. And I actually know what I'm talking about. And that to me was the most important thing ever was that what I was saying was true and that was representative of the gaming community. Cause whether I like it or not, the gaming, the gaming YouTube community and the collecting scene and the, the retro community scene is going to see these clips and they're going to think I'm cringy. They're going to think I'm awful. They're going to think I'm the worst. But whatever the fuck I said is going to be exactly as it was intended through history sure. and through the community. I guarantee you it'll be a nice juicy CU podcast segment when you're on the show. <laughs> but I got on the one storage worth person. Renee, who has taken shots at me in the past on Twitter and for whatever reason. I'm hoping it's not the one that visited you, by the way. But what I had a problem with is that when he found a huge storage locker games, he was pricing them out of thin air. Like, oh, those Atari 2600 games are $10 each. No, they're not. They're not $10 each. They're a dollar each, and you can't give away most of them. You know, like, so it creates a, a, a false uh, sense of, of history for the time, because for some reason, people think they see it on TV and it, and it has more weight than YouTube, which doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? And so you have to present the facts correctly. So I'm glad that you reached out to Norm and Bill and Jay and not me to get your <laughs> to get your. Now, I'm never going to let this go until I die. I'm never going to let that go. I'm sorry, Pat. I'm, I'm never going to let that go. Um, do you see yourself as uh, people? There's a negative and positive connotation to the word entrepreneur. Do I see? Do I see? Are you an entrepreneur? Absolutely. I would say I am. I would say that uh, I think if you run your own business, you're an entrepreneur because I feel like you don't have anyone to report to but yourself. You're just the – it's just you. You made this thing and you're whether you're making food or you're providing a service or you're making content or you're doing whatever you're – it is – you are the business. That is who you are. You are someone who took the risk to create this thing and – the fact that you're still pioneering it or you're still working through it and you're working for many, through many, many years looking to grow it and harness it and maintain it, that absolutely makes you an entrepreneur. It just depends whether or not uh, people I, – I feel like entrepreneur nowadays is like – an entrepreneur to me in like the tech sense that everyone wants to hear is like I've made seven businesses and I've sold all of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Philip DeFranco making these these uh, news organizations and selling them off one after another. 
you know, like that sort of thing. Right? Yeah, like you like, build you build it up to sell it, you start another one and you sell it. Yeah, I, and like that's like Tom Anderson from MySpace. He did it with MySpace, built the MySpace and sold it. You know, I'm sure. Well, thank God he did because you were you and your brother were destroying it. You're the reason it went under. <laughs> we are the, we're the reason why you all couldn't connect to your favorite MySpace page at four in the morning. <laughs> you're the one that you're the one that allowed everyone to do all their their gifs of snowflakes and would crash your browser because it couldn't load everything. Remember that crap? <laughs> yeah. You couldn't load some pages up. There was too much <laughs> customization. Way too much. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about – we'll switch, switch gears a little bit. Uh, something that surprised me that I saw a YouTuber do, but I, I love that you did it. And I think it's important to talk about, especially in the age of you know online content and, and people sitting on their butts. Uh, you've made, you've made your, your health and fitness goals very public. Uh, in the past, what over a year, and got a personal trainer, and have put some videos on on YouTube sharing your journey. What what prompted you to want to to start doing that? So I oh man, um, when I started doing my my weight and my health has been something that's been fluctuation since I was probably fifteen or sixteen. Um, I used to be the heaviest I've ever been in my entire life was three hundred and fifty pounds. Um, I used to be one of those those really problem kids that that was like really scared for their health. And it wasn't until I started playing DDR and started just like having a, a good growth spurt where I lost almost all that weight. And so when I was in high school, I was like really skinny, really in shape. I was exercising a lot. I was um, working on my space obviously. And so like I was, I had like a really crazy work ethic that would just fitness was not really a, a big deal to me. When I got to college, I put on those freshman 15 and uh, I was still able to maintain it and keep it off for the most part. When I when I made the completionist, I saw this massive undertaking of a show that was making zero dollars for the first two years that had no financial support that didn't really have merch or convention runs. I just I was a one man army that had some help on the side, and it was not going well in terms of my health. I would stay up. You know, I would literally stay up 26, 28 hours straight sometimes and get episodes done. And the whole allure of man versus show is very important to me. I wanted to make sure that I did not miss a Friday. If I did, if I missed maybe two or three Fridays in my entire career and those Fridays videos ended up becoming Monday videos. I did not want to walk away from that commitment. And as things developed and as things got um, bigger and scarier, uh, my health was getting worse. And, uh, beginning of this year, I started getting panic attacks. I started getting a lot of anxiety, which is not really who I am. Cause I'm, I'm a theater kid, right? So I'm used to talking and presenting and being in people's faces. And I used to sell games at, at Best Buy. So like I have a lot of retail experience engaging with customers and that stuff never really scared me or bothered me. But there were a couple of conventions in, in 2016 where I had genuine panic attacks where, and I didn't know what was going on because I'm sitting here going like, what the hell? Like, this isn't normal. And um, I went and saw the doctor and I was 310 pounds. Um, my blood sugar was really bad. Uh, my, my carbohydrates were really bad. My dad has type 2 diabetes and he had a quadruple bypass heart surgery and, had and has uh, high blood pressure. And... Uh, just, I had to, I'm, I'm 29, you know, I turned 29 I, I saw all of this and I was like, this is the end for me. Like I'm, I'm killing myself doing this. I need to make 
an active lifestyle change. And so given that YouTube is kind of in its down, its downswing in, in January, February, March until April, um, I decided to make a big change. And so I wanted to make myself committed to my audience to make sure that like they are the ones that can hold me accountable for not committing to it. And so I made this show called Buff Boys and it's literally a kind of like a, it's a, I say it, it is a reality show. What you see is real. Um, none of it is <laughs> not like, assisted. Not yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like none of it is. It's all. It's it's just us talking off the cuff. Um, just how you and I are right now, and uh, a lot of vomiting and throwing up in the early episodes. But um, I I in in three and a half months I went from three hundred and ten pounds to about two hundred and sixty. And wow. um, now, as of today, I think I'm 245, 250. Um, and that was, uh, I would have lost more, but uh, traveling and, and maintaining, I mean, you were with me in Norway. I was in that gym. I was putting in that work and, and running on the on the treadmill and stuff. Um, but uh, not every hotel across the planet has a good gym situation. And it's hard to eat healthy without being sensible sometimes with, you know, airplane food and, and whatnot. But uh I made it a big goal of mine to, to change my life, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. And uh, I'll tell you what, I don't care about how many views and subscribers I have anymore so much as I'm happy. And I think that's the big thing for me this year is, is trying to make myself physically, mentally, and emotionally happy with what I'm doing. Well, I believe in sort of a holism of the body affects the mind, affects the body. So yeah. you feel better physically, mentally you feel better. And there, and there is a little bit of science behind that, but it's just, to me, common sense that if you're not feeling physically run down, you have more energy because you're in better shape, mentally you're going to feel better. Yeah. I mean, that's it, just common sense. And you and maybe you've seen that so far. So in, you're saying in high school, you weighed 350 pounds about? Uh, it wasn't high school so much. It was like middle school. In middle school, I was like 13, 14. So I, I you weighed three fifty, and you went and you dropped down to a normal weight. Yeah, when at I some when points. I turned uh, when I turned about fifteen, sixteen years old, I re I recalibrated. I I that's why I have a lot of stretch uh, stretch uh, marks on my on my abs um, from from that that massive growth spurt. Uh, that I received in in the two years. That's a huge growth spurt. To, to wow, that's yeah. But wow. and you're about and you're about what? You're my height or li- you're like five ten? Uh no no, I'm five seven, five eight, five eight. Okay, so wow, five eight three fifty at fourteen years old. Yeah, wow. Um, so this was you see the obviously the history of, uh, of your family having issues. So that kind of I guess scares you a little bit. You don't want to end up there. You, type two diabetes to potentially developing that as an adult. But then obviously you, you, you're feeling better as, as you've been working out, eating a little healthier. Is it also encouraging to see the response from people to seeing your progress? It's been crazy, crazy infectious with the amount of support I've received. I, I get tweets every day about people who joined me on my journey and they've lost 80 pounds, 90 pounds, a hundred pounds. And I'm, I'm so proud of those people who do it. And, uh, it's, it's, it's so, you know, at first I was so concerned, like it's going to be so hard, but like, it really isn't. It's just simple. You have to take the time and make the time. And I think once I realized that it made everything hard in everyone else, because like deadlines were based on my, like, I feel, I feel bad. I come to work today or really any day. And it's like, all right, guys, we're going to film from 12 to, to three. And it's like, oh wait, no, we can't because Gerard's at the gym. <laughs> like we can't cause charge the doctor. We can't cause charge the dentist. Like we can't do these things because the one guy who's running our company is going to miss this important event. And so 
But everyone, it's not a crappy podcast. <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> um, but I, I think because everyone is so supportive in my company, let alone in my audience, that it's it's been a game changer for me. It really has been. Um, I used to snore bad and have real bad sleep apnea. That's all gone now. Um, and like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Was I snoring in your room, Pat, when we were sleeping in, in the same room? I was so out of it, I probably didn't even notice, to be honest. <laughs> that the Norway trip takes so much out of me. Cause probably you two were coming from the West Coast. Yeah. That it takes me a good week to recover from it. It's really rough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not woe is me. I'm going to Norway. But it, it physically, the jet lag and everything. And plus the fact that in Norway, the sun's down for only three hours a day. That is so the, it, that's the scariest that's, part. That's at 1130 at night, the sun's still out. And you're like, what the hell time is it? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, It's bizarre. It, it, but that screws with your, your cycle as well to sleep. So you you've inspired the people, which is which is good. I think Penn Jillette has done something similar because he wrote a book about he Penn Jillette lost about a hundred or one hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah, looks totally different. And he's people tweeted him, "Hey, I lost fifty pounds. I lost seventy five pounds." And I think it's it's nice to have at least for because when you when at least for me in terms of losing weight. You don't have the best role models when you turn on TV because usually those people are like ripped it in shape and they're, they're you know like oh buy this video you can be like me and they're professional models they've been in shape for 15, 20 years they were never probably extremely overweight they were they were just always toned and ripped you know and got into it for the most part so I think it's good to have people I be able to provide people to identify with to others if they have their own struggles or hey listen if Gerard can get into better shape if Pat can do it then I can do it. it's not that difficult uh, and that's what I like about that I'll, I'll tell thank you thank you very much the I'll tell you one thing that I that I never forget about which is what's helped me stay motivated is uh in like year two of the completionist like when the year when the completionist turned one year old um I Obviously, was I did YouTube full time for for fourteen months without having any income, and uh, after fourteen months, my dad was like, "You have to get a job. You can't do this part time. You have to do it. You know, you have to do, get a real job." So I worked for Beachbody, the guys who make <laughs> who made a P ninety X and and that stuff. <laughs> I I was an editor for them. I, I was working on 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 a secret project that never came to light, um, and I don't know what I can I can say about the project, but I'll tell you. Um, one of the things it was it involves large people losing weight, and like in a, in a documentary style situation. And uh, one of the things that I'll never forget is, uh, I my job was to ingest footage, label it, uh, convert it from regular to pro res for the editors in the editing room, and then go from there with notes. And one of my my final tasks before I got fired to let go because the project got canned was I had to watch all the testimonials. And you saw a lot of large people crying and, and tearing up and having a hard time with the workouts, with the dieting and stuff. But was the most fascinating and the thing that I'll never forget was what they would do in between the takes. Because the camera guys had all their equipment set up and everything's rolling and they'd look away or change batteries or whatnot. And you would see these poor people reaching off camera and grabbing a hot dog. And then eating it in one gulp or French fries or donuts. And they would – you could see they were a slave to their own health. They, they, they were in this show or in this presentation of losing weight, trying to be better. And they were so kind of enthralled and stuck into their ways of, 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 of sugar carbs and that sugar mm-hmm. style 
that they would just sneak in junk food in every shot. And I, and one of my jobs was to report every single time that they ate food. And I counted well over a hundred times where they'd be eating in between takes. They would be eating like it was, it was rough to see because it's, it's like, fuck the reality show aspect. Fuck, fuck the editing. You're, you're watching people mentally struggle with their demons. And that to me is something that was so important going into this was like, I can't be that. I can't give into that. I have to commit to this because my life is so important to me and it should be for everyone. Sure. You want to see you around forever. I would just say this. I think one of the, while, while obviously any sort of addiction, you have to have some sort of empathy for, I always argue that being addicted to food or overeating is one of the toughest because you have to eat. You don't have to gamble. You don't have to drink alcohol to survive. You don't have to smoke cigarettes. you don't have to have sex constantly to survive. Well, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but, for, but for eating, you, you can't give up eating. So you, think, about, think about if, like, okay, you're a drug user. Yeah, you go cold, go cold turkey, but you don't have to survive doing that line of coke the next week. You still have to eat. So to me, that's why I always have a lot more empathy, at least, uh, for people that struggle with overeating. Because it's not like you can go cold turkey on, on eating. You, yeah. just, you have to re- retrain your mind about what you need and give up what you don't and be, and be smart about it. And that's a lot harder, I think, than some people realize when you're looking at it from the outside. If you haven't been through it like we have, it's a little more difficult to realize – to get to that point where like, oh my god, I'm eating half the amount of food I used to and I'm full. Like what's going on? Like your whole body chemistry changes. Yeah. Your, your whole the, – all the endorphins and triggers and, and s- things in your brain changes. You have to – you're literally rechanging your body's chemistry slowly and gradually. It's really interesting when you, when you look at something like that. But I'm glad you're going through it and I'm really proud of, of, of what you've done. Thank like, you. I, I really am. Thank you very much. I know especially since your, your, your extreme schedule makes it tougher. Uh, but for those out there, you know, it, you don't have to work out every day. If you're just starting off, you know, 20 minutes, three, three days a week, start little and you build that. I mean, that's, that's really all it is. Half an hour on the treadmill will do wonders. Just even, even a half an hour on the treadmill, just walking in place. And if you're bored, you have your switch, you have your Wii U, like throw it in there with you yeah. and, and do it. It's so simple. It's so simple. Get one of those standing desks, and you know you can you can walk in place. Yo, my dad, my dad has that in his office. He has a standing desk with his laptop and the treadmill underneath it, and that's that's there. You go. That is a great way to do it. Working out sucks. It's so hard. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks. But like, it's gonna get better, and you're gonna enjoy it. I was gonna say eventually. No, it sucks at the beginning. I can tell you. We, I wish we had more time. I could talk about how hellacious it was in college when I started running. Yeah, and how I felt like I was going to die for the first three weeks, but eventually it actually gets fun once you get it into your schedule. Yeah, uh, Gerard, I, I'm running out. Some, sometimes I run out of time versus a guest. What do you have going on in the future besides your nice storage war, <laughs> wars appear, appearance where you didn't bother to call me? <laughs> Pat, you're never going to let this down. I'm so sorry. I'm not pet. I'm not petty at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, what do I got going on? Uh. The new episodes of, of the redone 120 episodes of The Completionist start airing in October. Um, You're a nut. I'm crazy. I'm insane. But uh, and the big thing that people don't really realize is that I'm not making the same videos. I'm not going to like rehash the old content. It's just going to be more about has my opinion changed about this game since five plus years ago? And really, you know, are there any stories or memories I created while working on those episodes and things like that? So it's going to be very different. Um, other than that... Uh, I'm, I got a lot of secret stuff in the works, but nothing too, too crazy, nothing concrete. Um, just 
working on the completionist and defend it and my let's play channel and and keeping the office going as much as we can and where can everyone find you on twitter and on youtube and on twitch and wherever else you are oh man <laughs> uh that one video gamer t-h-a-t-o-n-e-v-i-d-e-o-g-a-m-e-r that's my moniker everywhere on youtube on uh twitch um and then everything else is just the completionist or gerard the completionist and uh a lot of people don't know how to spell or say my name correctly, so I'm sure if you just Google the completionist, you'll find anything and everything you need to know. But uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. Pat, thank you for having me, man. This was a lot of fun. No, thanks, thanks. And there's actually a, a ton of stuff that I wanted to get you that we did, and so we'll have to do this again in the future. Yeah. And thanks, and thanks for potentially. Well, again, thanks for helping out with last year's NES marathon. You were a lifesaver, and maybe potentially this year's charity marathon again. We'll see announcement coming in the near future about that. <laughs> Yeah, stay tuned for that. Thanks a lot, Gerard, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again to Gerard for speaking to me. Let me tell you about That's It Fruit and Veggie Bars. You know That's It Fruit Bars. Ian and I have spoken about them on the podcast. I still don't know how they work. There's only there's only fruit in here. Apple and strawberry, apple and mango, apple and coconut. Well, now they have That's It Veggie Bars. a little bit different, right? So these are, in my mind, a more healthy version or healthier version of a granola bar but you have veggies in here and bean combinations so my favorites are black beans and peas there's black beans and corn black beans and carrots and they're healthy 90 calories each about it's non-gmo there's no no additives in there there's no preservatives in there it's gluten-free it's they're they're tasty they're tasty it's a light snack on the go throw it in your car or your little knapsack or your purse or do people still have fanny packs? Whatever. The whole point is that it's a nice, healthy snack, and it won't weigh you down, and it, and it feels good. It feels good to eat something healthy every now and then, right? Go to that'sitfruit.com and enter code NOTCOMMON and save 10% on any order today. Again, it's under 100 calories, 4 grams of veggie protein, great source of fiber, non-GMO, no preservatives, no fat, gluten-free. Use it for a snack, for a treat. You won't feel guilty at midnight like me sometimes grabbing one of these. Again, go to that'sitfruit.com and use code not common to save 10%. Thanks for sponsoring the Not So Common Podcast. So if you enjoyed this Not So Common Podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can rate the podcast or please leave a comment and let others know on social media how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support me, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Thanks, and I'll see you next time.